doing it uh, through Daniel and the, with the youth group downstairs, which has been fun to go through that with Pastor upstairs. We've been trying to explore some of the themes there. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like I'll miss the ending portions of Daniel, especially as it's getting fun into the prophecy section, Daniel 7 and moving forward. Uh, Rose and I are not looking forward to leaving you all. As we anticipate moving to southern Ohio at the end of June, uh, Lord willing, here in about one month, uh, we've been reflecting uh, over the tremendous blessings that God has given she and I here uh, in Iowa, especially with you all here in Altoona. Uh, one of the greatest uh, challenges I think I had in coming as a very naive, insecure, immature freshman uh, back in 2014 was trying to figure out a church to go to. Um, and I recall coming here uh, in 2014 and uh, getting to love the people here, coming to love uh, the heart that I saw here amongst the people, and I am grateful that the Lord has led me here, led my wife here, and uh, we mean what we say when we're not looking forward to leaving. So in light of that, you'll have to suffer through tonight as Pastor Josh asked uh, me to come and speak one last time to us, although I guess uh, if you come, do come next week as we celebrate the graduation of Levi Prindle and uh, Ethan Taylor. Um, we'll celebrate with the Prindles and Taylors then. You'll have to suffer me then as well. Uh, but tonight, uh, as I was thinking and praying through, what can I encourage us with, challenge us with, as I understand the things going on us in the world right now as I understand us and our own hearts, impulses, and desires, what might the Lord have for us? And I've landed on Philippians 1, 27 through 30. The contemporary context in which we live presents multiple challenges to believers, especially the local church. Within the past months, we've watched the sociological volume being turned up on issues such as the rewriting or erasing of history, racial tensions, canceled or censored speech, political power plays, international conflicts, sexual identity, and violent rioting, to highlight merely a few. Consequently, I think that this has turned up the pressure for us as Christians as well, and we're having now to think through how we will choose to live in the context that God has placed us here in 2021. At the ideological level, that is the way at which people think, these challenges are not something new. They're simply new presentations of godlessness, a phenomenon with which Christianity is all too familiar. However, living through such a time, I think, personalizes the question, how will we, how will you, choose to live as a Christian? One of my professors told us a story in class, a true story, of a missionary couple serving in South America. And one of the challenges the missionary couple had to face was helping people see what it meant to be a Christian. Nominal Christianity was a very prevalent idea. One night, while they were in their bedroom sleeping, they, the couple wakes up to find that they are being robbed, and the thieves are actually in their bedroom. Uh, once the intruders saw that they were awake, they pulled out their guns to keep them silent and stationary while they continued to plunder the couple's belongings. Not really knowing what to do, the husband just begins preaching the gospel to them. And after making some of the basic gospel points, one of the thieves replied and said, Oh, oh it's okay. I'm already a believer. <laughs> so he, the thief turned to his buddy and said, Hey, let's take it easy on these guys. He's a preacher. We'll not rob as much as we would have otherwise. As Christians, 
we bear the status of the gospel of Christ. And this represents and demands a very high standard of conduct from the person who identifies as a Christian. That story is funny. It was very funny to me when I first heard it. And it's still funny because we understand that just because you identify as a believer or a Christian, the way you live has to correspond with that. And if it doesn't, we have a legitimate reason to wonder, do you really mean what you say? The pressures of our society are, indeed are very hostile to the gospel of Christ. But, my friends, we're charged with the imperative in God's word to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're in Philippians chapter 1, and Paul introduces for us a theme for which he offers thanks and prayer concerning the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, the benefits of fellowship, and the joy of fulfilling the fruit of righteousness. And this theme is expanded in the subsequent verses, still in chapter 1, where Paul discerns how the gospel advances and how it naturally infiltrates Christian relationships. And this theme, then, is made explicit for us when we come to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, verse 27, and of course it's exemplified throughout the rest of the book. So let's turn our attention to Philippians chapter 1, again coming back to verse 27 as we read earlier. I'll read it for us again. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. The simple idea that uh, most scholars and I as well agree that runs through the entire book of Philippians is this simple exhortation. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul introduces this idea by starting off saying only. It, this is a matter of emphasis to Paul. And he says to live worthy. Your English translation may render that differently. It's live in a manner that's becoming to the gospel, that corresponds with what the gospel is. Order your life, Paul is saying, as a believer that's in, in accordance with the truth of God's word. What he's saying here, he uses a word that's not used that Paul's not used to using. He's used to saying walk worthy of the gospel, which is well and good. But here he uses a word that we translate as walk and can mean walk uh, in some ways, but it literally means exercise your citizenship. Be a citizen of the gospel. And because citizens have obligations, right? Uh, if you've ever been or seen an in international sports games, uh, they play the respective national anthem for both countries that are represented by both teams. And when one national anthem is being sung by one team, we don't see the other team joining in and singing the national anthem. Why? Well, we understand that those are citizens of that country. There is a loyalty to their country, and so they are going to participate. They're going to live as citizens of their country. Paul is saying, live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. Live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. This phrase we're familiar with, but I want to make sure we clearly understand what exactly Paul means by the gospel of Christ before we get into the rest of the text. 
The gospel of Christ coming very succinctly must begin with God's sinlessness. He has nothing to do with the depravity of man or any sin at all. And man, of course, is sinful. Furthermore, we have a problem because God is just. Unlike other religious systems, they can try to excuse the problem of man's sin by God being merciful and loving, which our God is, but he is also a God who is just. And because he is just, we must be punished for our sins. Because we are sinners and God is not, and God is a just God, he will judge mankind for our sins. But he's done that by sending us Christ, by giving us a payment, by giving us a way of salvation through a person that instead of us bearing the full weight that we deserve to bear for our sins, Christ bore that on himself, who is perfect, who is sinless. And by dying in our place and by trusting in him, we can have the hope of salvation. God's justice is satisfied because Christ, who is perfect, paid for our sins, and now we are given the choice to trust God, to accept and believe the gospel, clinging to that as our, clinging, I should say, really to the person of Christ as our Savior, and thus giving us a relationship with God. And this is the idea behind what Paul means, the gospel, the good news of Christ. So, but this raises a question then. If, I, uh, if what I'm going for here, my main idea is that we should live worthy of the gospel of Christ, this raises the natural question of how should we do this, right? What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are we doing it right now? Did you do it this last week? What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel of Christ? Some may say, well, fight against those who disagree with you to push your own agenda. You just overpower them. Some may say, control the political paradigm. If we can get in control of the state, then we can control how Christianity functions and works. Some may say, hide behind the digital wall of social media and verbally cut down your opponents so that, uh, understandably, you are then bringing yourself up and just disagree with one another indirectly. Some may say, well, live worthy of the gospel of Christ by just ignoring the world. And let's just live in our own comfortable church here in Altoona, live in our comfortable homes, live our jobs, and just let the world suffer as it's going to. But this doesn't seem to be the answer the Bible gives us. And I think that those are four implausible options. And on the contrary, I think that Paul effectively prescribes four actions that teach us what living, of the go- what living worthy of the gospel looks like. So, okay, so we're still in Philippians chapter 1. We're told to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. How? And Paul says, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So this is our first point. How do we live worthy of the gospel of Christ? We stand united in one spirit. Paul starts off by saying, standing firm. This language would have been very familiar to the military uh, officers or the lingo at the time. Uh, In that arena, so to say, it makes sense to work as a unit rather than as an individual, right? If you're going to fight against an enemy, you don't want to be individualized and spread out. You want to stand together. You want to be united to accomplish your mission. And Paul is saying, stand firm, stand united in one spirit. There's some that may say this is, Paul's referring to the Holy Spirit or just the spirit of unity. I think either one is going to accomplish the same point. My understanding is Paul probably has in mind just the spirit of unity because in the context he goes on to say, with also one mind, striving together, showing just this unity of a person almost, an idea he touches on in Ephesians, right? Uh, That the church is a body. 
and body. We can understand speaking of a body with a spirit or a mind sometimes. Regardless, Paul's saying, stand united in one spirit. And of course, as a church, as believers, we do share together the Holy Spirit. There should be a unifying element to believers, is what Paul is saying. For an example of this, a Roman testudo or a Roman tortoise is what it's called. You may have seen a picture of it. It's when the soldiers interlocked their shields in such a way to defend against an onslaught of enemy barrage. Uncoming enemy uh, attacks they can defend against by standing united together. Now, as a soldier on the edge, it may be convenient for you to lower your shield somewhat down so your shins don't get hit, uh, or to pull it up higher perhaps to cover your face, but in doing so, you compromise the strength of the group. The strength of the group is attained because all of the individuals are working together. All of the individuals are committed to standing united for the benefit of the group. Because if you lower your, your shield to shave your own shins, not shave your own shins, save your own shins, say that five times fast, uh, you're compromising the group. Because if you get hit and you go down, there's a hole now that they can penetrate to bring down the entire defense. Paul is saying, stand united in one spirit. And my brothers and sisters, I would encourage us to do the same. We must stand united in one spirit for the truth. We have enough enemies outside of this church against us. We do not need to be creating enemies amongst ourselves or becoming enemies with one another, causing more problems. Well, <laughs> you should not become one of those who, uh, or be, uh, some, excuse me, you sh we should not be fighting against those people who are on our team, which is the people you're sitting next to, the people in front of you and behind you. But note that this requires hard work. This requires no small amount of humility. And Paul knows this because he goes on in chapter 2 to say, hey, guys, look to Christ. Look how he humbled himself. And you can do the same to stand together in unity. So then we have to ask the hard questions then, right? How can we go about disagreeing with one another without diverging into disunity? I don't think all of us as believers have to be on the same page in every last detail and various things that come up in business meetings, but we do not have an excuse to be disunified. We do not have an excuse not to stand together in one spirit. I don't know perhaps all the details of how to go about disagreeing cordially, but perhaps try to see things from other people's perspectives. Ask questions. Hey, I, you're seeing it this way, and I'm have a, having a really hard time seeing it from that way. Can you help me understand where you're coming from? And perhaps then to relay that uh, disagreement there. Offer critiques kindly. Take correction maturely. Perhaps try to personally connect with some other church members on a regular basis. Now that we're somewhat coming out of COVID, this may be more plausible. Another thing that we can do perhaps to strengthen unity is to be aware of cliques. I have the privilege, looking back in my college experience, to have visited a lot of churches. And I'm very grateful with complete sincerity to say that this church does not strike me that way. That uh, my brothers and sisters here, we are united. We do stand together. Uh, but we must be aware of forming groups, having the young people hang out with the young people, the older people with the older people. We are a church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we must stand united, and we must take a diligent, intentional efforts to pursue that end. 
So Paul says, live worthy of the gospel by standing united in one spirit. He says in the second half of verse 27, to walk, excuse me, to work together with one mind. Stand united in one spirit, now work together with one mind. He says, uh, whether I come or go, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he brings up this new word now of striving together. And this is an athletic word. We get our English word athletics from this word. Uh, but this implies, implies hardship. It implies that there's going to be a struggle. It implies that there's going to be some contention, something that we have to work through. But Paul's saying work together. Again, there's the concept of unity that we must as a church stick together, stand together, and work together against the hard things. And he goes on to say, describe this in one mind. We have a single aim. Although, although there may be slight disagreements, at the end of the day, our mind should be one where we pursue a common goal and our moral energies are united toward pursuing that. If you've ever played any type of sports, you know how important this point is, that teams have to work together. Uh, I can't think of many times I've been more discouraged playing sports, uh, even if we're losing in soccer 12-0, which is absolutely terrible. Um, but even if we are, it's very discouraging to have a teammate on your team um, who's not playing as a team, he's playing as an individual, and every time he receives the ball, He's not passing. He's trying to accomplish uh, the goal of, that the team should be accomplishing by himself. And as a result, we very, very regularly lost as a result of that. Because teams aren't meant to function as individuals. Teams are meant to function as teams. And Paul is saying to us, work together with one mind. And he says, he kind of cumul uh, summarizes this idea by saying, you must stand and strive together with one spirit, with one mind, toward, oriented toward the faith of the gospel. The focus and emphasis that Paul has here is on the good news that we have as believers accepted by faith. This would have mutual benefits, meaning the individuals on the team aren't working for themselves, but we embrace the common goal and manifest the core of what Christians believe, which is the faith of the gospel, but this would also impact the world, which we'll see, Paul will bring that up in a moment. By standing and striving together, we as a church are not going to be easily overwhelmed by opposition. And so, my friends, we must work at being unified. What causes disunity? James asked the same question, and more or less, and he responded by saying that wars and strives lead to disunity coming from our hearts. The reason that we can have unity at all is because what God has done for us through Christ. If a person does not see the faith of the gospel as an incredible privilege, I do not believe that the person will live like it. We must work together, but this must be happening at a personal level. Let me explain what I mean. You individually must work at preparing yourself to work with your brothers and sisters so that you can show to others the same kindness and patience that God has shown to you. For example, typically most jobs prepare a plan for work before they set out. Officers anticipate issues. Construction workers scope out their project before they begin. Mechanics analyze the issue. Mus musicians, they tune their instruments before they begin. To prepare for some heavy lifting with other Christians, you personally need to stretch out beforehand. 
This means that the issues that we as a church can rightly anticipate in the future many times have to deal with a spiritual dimension to them. And so imagine then, what would happen if a bunch of spiritually starved, unhealthy, and out of shape believers suddenly tried to handle something that was spiritually difficult? We must work together, but that implies that we have to be doing that as individuals. You might detect perhaps that you're not well prepared to stand and strive with your church if you know your portfolio details more accurately than your Bible, or if you're following the cryptocurrency status better than what you uh, are following what you read in your Bible the previous day, which I hope, by the way, that we are doing. yeah, maybe I'll just leave that there. We, we have to be in God's word regularly. So working together seeks to understand others, not simply voicing our own opinion and turning uh, away the insights of others, but seeks to work together in an athletic sense, but also to stand together resolutely as in a military sense. Paul goes on then. He, so he's given us two actions, right? How do we live worthy of the gospel? We've got to stand together. We've got to strive, or we've got to work together. And thirdly, getting into verse 28, Paul says we must face the gospel's opponents. He says it negatively, not in a bad way, but by using the word no is what I mean. Verse 28 saying, in no way being alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, from God. And so I think it's fair to say what Paul's getting at is there is that we as a church must face the gospel's opponents. He's using the language here now of don't be alarmed, don't be frightened. It's a word that was commonly used in uh, the language at the time for horses that were startled uh, easily and then would lead to stampeding. If you've worked with horses before, you know you can't be loud or uh, spontaneous with them or they're going to freak out. Uh, Each time you walk behind them, put your hand on their uh, backside just so they know you're there. If you surprise them and you're back there, prepare to be kicked. Uh, Paul's saying, don't be frightened like that. Don't be alarmed. Uh, As if you're stampeding uncontrollably when you're faced with the gospel's opponents. Why? The lifestyle of Christians first is a sign of destruction to the world. This is a very fascinating point to me that Paul brings up. There is a future that we have with Christ. Part of the fun I've been having uh, going through Daniel with the youth group is just trying to help us all see how First, terrible uh, things are going to get because of how depraved man is, but then how glorious things are going to get because of how great God is. And the joys of living in eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, uh, where at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he will hand all things over to the Father and there will be perfect righteousness. There will be everlasting justice. Um, It's something I'm greatly looking forward to. But uh, the lifestyle that we have, living as worthy of the gospel, is actually a sign of destruction to unbelievers. Because if we have this future, this reality should confront unbelievers. You have something that they do not, but they should be able to see that by the way that you live. Because this is because we have a prophetic and evangelic message. What I mean by that prophetic, the Lord's coming again, and if you're not ready... (laughs) Wow. Uh, You're going to face the entire wrath of God. You're going to, uh, well, it's good to preach the truth of John 3.16, and uh, we must preach that. But we also must remember what John says uh, also in in chapter 3, in verse 36, which is how he ends the chapter, when he writes, He that believeth on the Son does indeed have everlasting life. 
And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Thus we have a message to the world that lets other believer, unbelievers know that by rejecting Christ, there is a wrath coming upon them that they are not going to want to bear. Thus our message is prophetic, but also evangelic. Evangelic meaning we are presenting the gospel to them. We're giving the good news that we've found in Christ and thus offering hope. They should see, hopefully by us doing that, that God is indeed loving and merciful, yes, but he is also more than that. He is also a God of wrath who will do justice, and we must present the entire truth of God's word to them. Thus, the lifestyle of Christians is a sign of destruction to the world, but it's also a sign of the believer's salvation. Our eternal destiny is settled with Christ. Once a believer, the Bible teaches, is saved and places his or her faith in Christ uh, for salvation, that person is eternally saved. That they cannot lose that status of salvation. And this is a wonderful benefit that God has given to us in Christ. And Paul is saying, church in Philippi, and effectively to believers here in Altoona as well, Face the gospel's opponents. Do not be frightened of them. When it comes to your identity as a Christian, what causes you to be frightened? When are you tempted to be silent in the face of oppositions? I have, uh, I think most of you know I work in a warehouse in Des Moines, so I have a lot of unsaved co-workers, and they know that I'm a Christian, and so sometimes uh, they'll come up and ask me a lot of bizarre questions. Uh, one recently uh, was, do you really believe that God created the world in, world in six literal days? And it was in a context where we couldn't uh, continue the discussion further, so I said, yes, I, I do. And he said, fascinating and left. And we kind of had a, have a, some spurring moments, in a, I think in a cordial way. Uh, but it's to the point now that he would not say that he is my friend, although I've tried to extend myself out and be friendly to him. Uh, but by what I believe, sometimes by what you believe, uh, we can lose friends over that. What are you willing to endure for Christ? Uh, there's major interview universities we've seen in the news here recently that are caving to things uh, uh, that our culture is trying to promote and historically they may have been holding to what the Bible teaches whereas we see now they're wanting to be inclusive and really it seems that their allegiance is more to the NCAA rather than the Word of God Um, and they crave their sports identity rather than their Christian identity and thus they're compromising because they fear opposition more than they fear the Lord. There's other things like if, you're a, if you like writing books or articles, uh, some platforms may not publish or promote your work now because they may see it as offensive or discriminatory. What are you willing to lose when you're faced with the gospel's opponents? There are students now who are applying to schools that they perhaps could get into maybe 10 years ago, but are being denied now because they can see, ah, you're a Christian, you believe the Bible, yeah, there's no way you're going to get in here. And for those of you that are anticipating college, uh, that can be a hard reality to swallow. Or perhaps those of, you, those of us in the workforce, uh, a job promotion. Uh, could very well be denied from you in the future because you are seen for living consistently with what the Bible teaches. These things are not beyond, uh, shouldn't be beyond our imagination, I think. So I think to encourage us, we should anticipate issues before they arise. How will we engage the culture around us? 
What if they're throwing rocks through our windows because we're not welcoming and affirming? What if we get sued next because we have, quote, discriminatory views that harm society, end quote? Uh, I spent a little bit of time one summer at Hamilton Square Baptist Church in San Francisco, California. It's an amazing ministry. They're literally right in downtown San Francisco, skyscrapers all around them. God has blessed uh, that church location and continues to bless them. Uh, but being there and being in that context uh, geographically, they've had to face some of these things, literally, and had to do a lot of repairs, had to do uh, a lot of hiding in some ways because of the cultural movement around them being very antagonistic to what the gospel is, to what the Bible teaches. If that were us, and don't put it past Altoona, Iowa, if that becomes here, how are we going to respond? And Paul writes, face the gospel's opponents. Don't be frightened because of them. Christianity naturally comes with opponents, but we need to face them. And he's going to elaborate a little bit more on that here in a moment, which is our last action that we can do to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. He just said, face the gospel's opponents. Thirdly, fourth and lastly, Paul is effectively saying, embrace suffering for Christ. This is perhaps the most fascinating point of all as I was studying this text. Uh, verse 29, Paul writes, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. I can only imagine uh, that, uh, well, first before I get there, the word that Paul uses for granted here in my English translation uh, is actually the word grace. It's a verbal form, so we could legitimately translate what Paul said. God has graced you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. And this is what I can imagine. I can imagine being in the church at Philippi and uh, Epaphroditus or someone's reading Paul's letter for the first time to us. He gets through that verse and just having to interrupt and saying, I'm sorry, Epaphroditus. It sounded like Paul just said that God graced us to suffer. Can you read that again? And, uh, yeah, no, that's what Paul said. God has graced us to suffer. What? How? What does that mean? And Paul gives an example, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me. This is the church in Philippi. We understand from Acts 16 that Paul was beaten and physically persecuted, thrown into prison uh, in Philippi and suffered before the people of the city. And he's saying, you saw that in me and God has graced that to you. And so we too, fourth and finally, can embrace suffering for Christ. Why? because you have been graced belief in him. Paul starts off with that, saying this is an ongoing reality. You are a believer, and that is the grace of God. Amen, and that's true. But interestingly, Paul says not only, and he says you believe, and that's what we highlight often, right? Our salvation, and that's good and true. We should. Praise the Lord that a righteous, sinless God would love sinful man to send Christ to die in our place. We have salvation by the grace of Christ, but Paul is emphasizing here, not only are you having salvation, but you have also been graced to suffer for him. This is how Paul phrases it, by bringing it up to the level of high importance. Uh, this would, I need to clarify what I'm saying here. Embrace suffering for Christ. I don't think that we need to embrace the suffering itself, because suffering itself is not a privilege, but suffering on the behalf of Christ is a privilege. Some words of comment here, these are just my observations. One, 
Be careful of seeing everything that we go through as Christians as suffering. Uh, just because we are a Christian who is suffering doesn't mean that what we're experiencing is Christian suffering. Uh, meaning if you have a hangnail that, that can be very painful and it could get infected, I don't think that's Christian suffering, though. I certainly don't think that's what Paul had in mind or Christ when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Um, so be careful of seeing everything that we go through as suffering, but also be careful of seeing suffering as something all of us should handle in the exact same way. Here, coming back to the idea that Paul's getting at is live worthy of the gospel of Christ as a church, being unified in doing so. When other believers in our church are suffering, we should sympathize with them, not condemn them for not handling suffering in the way we think they should handle it or the way that we would handle it. Some things are harder for some people than others. And thirdly, beware of condemning others for not seeing God's sovereignty through suffering. Suffering is hard. Suffering for Christ is especially hard. And that can be hard to recognize what God is doing in the immediate moment. But that doesn't give us reason to condemn one another for perhaps, yes, it is true, that God is sovereign over all things, but that may not be quite the right time to tell them that. We should love one another and help them through that. And yes, not ignore the truth that God is in control, but encourage one another and remind one another that we can be there for one another, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we should act like that and thus helping one another along accordingly. Paul's uh, it goes on to say in verse 30 that God has corporately unified you with other believers. He's saying the same struggle that you saw in me, uh, you get to experience. Believers are able to share in conflict, in struggle, in suffering for the same cause. And the common link that we have is suffering in Christ. Several, if not many, probably would have seen Paul being beaten in Philippi, recorded in Acts 16. It created a whole riot uh, in the city. Uh, the sufferings and struggles that we face, however, should point us back to God's grace and his providential control and graceful purpose. Paul didn't give up in Acts 16. Praise the Lord that he didn't. Uh, but that was hard. He did suffer physically uh, for the sake of Christ, and yet he endured that. And that was a means by which he was able to connect the anticipated suffering of the believers in a way uh, with his own suffering, saying, look, because we believe in Christ, this is a grace that we have to share. Church history has much to teach us about this dilemma. I had a lot of fun reading. Uh, well, no, not fun. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading because it was informative, but it was also very hard to read through what the early church went through as far as in the instance of suffering. Uh, in the New Testament, when the apostles were commanded to stop preaching Christ or that there would be consequences, what did they do? <laughs> they kept on preaching Christ. They weren't outrightly trying to rebel against their authorities. They didn't just start rioting or suing them. They accepted the consequences because their allegiance was to God and to preaching the gospel. Now, please don't read into that. I'm not saying that Christians can never riot or Christians can never sue, but perhaps such actions could be, could be done in conjunction with a passion for the gospel of Christ. I'm simply observing that the emphasis of the New Testament shows the believer's determination to preach Christ 
regardless of the consequences. I mentioned church history. Ignatius re, uh, rejoices in the closeness that his suffering bl- brings him to God. He was living uh, probably around the time of the second century, meaning uh, also looking into the details, he was the disciple of one of the disciples, uh, at least had that influence there, meaning he is not far connected at all from the actual disciples themselves. And he writes this, The one near to the sword is near to God, and he who is in the midst of beasts is in the midst of God, which, by the way, is one of the many ways the Christians suffered by being thrown into arenas with wild animals and being torn uh, torn to bits. He continues to write, quote, Only let it be in the name of Jesus Christ, so as to suffer together with him. I endure all things because he, the perfect man, empowered me empowers me, end quote. Elsewhere, he writes that his suffering due to the way Christians had suffered before him is something he can anticipate. He writes this, quote, fire and cross and packs of wild beasts, the wrenching of bones, the mangling of limbs, the grinding of my whole body, evil punishments of the devil, let these come upon me, only that I may attain Jesus Christ, end quote. You may wonder, okay, Andrew, yeah, we know that's in church history. And yeah, we know that Paul says to uh, embrace suffering, is really how I'm saying it, for Christ. But we're here in America. This is 2021. You're not serious that this, these types of things would come to us, would they? The pastor of Moody Church, former pastor of Moody Church, uh, current still, Erwin Lutzer, um, wrote a book recently, uh, entitled We Will Not Be Silenced. That's a very good read if you get the hands, uh, get a chance to read it. Um, and what he was writing on is the events actually going on in 2020 from a Christian's perspective and how much of the world is trying to silence us as Christians. And one of the things that uh, the world is doing to silence us is to persecute us. This is happening all over the world, even currently as we speak. If you're not familiar with going, what's going on in Myanmar, formerly Burma, uh, see me afterward. There's a individual on site there with Baptist, look, uh, and associated with Baptist Children's Home, whom we support as a church. Uh, keeps up a daily, or not daily, uh, a regular journal where you can see uh, all the way back in March up till now uh, how that situation has progressed. It's very sad to read through. Um, but believers do suffer. But you're like here, here in America, Andrew, really? Well, Erwin Lutzer. He wrote this. He had someone come and do a conference on uh, Islam, which uh, this individual came from, uh, and converted eventually to Christianity. And he, uh, Pastor Lutzer asked him the question. He said, quote, In light of what you have shared and considering the gains that radical Islam is making in America, what is my responsibility as the pastor of a church? This individual pressed his finger against my chest and said, Your responsibility is to teach your people to be ready to die as martyrs for the faith. I am not a prophet, nor the son of the prophet, nor will I try to do any prophecy, but I would not put it past uh, the tremendous blessings we do currently have and have had in America to anticipate what some of the world uh, around us are experiencing as Christians. And so we as believers must be steadfast. Paul did not give up in Acts 16. We cannot give up either when things are going hard. We must be committed to pleasing God by identifying ourselves with Christ because suffering for Christ is a privilege. Now, I do not think that this is something that we have to be actively looking for. When can I get to suffer for Christ today? But I think that when it does come, we should embrace it as a part of God's grace. Why? 
because God is good and he is in control. And although we may not know his purposes, we know him and we can be steadfast in that which he has called us to do. And so thus Paul reminds us, he exhorts us, as I exhort you, my dear church family, that we must live worthy of the gospel of Christ. To do this, we must stand firm in one spirit. We must strive together in one mind. We must face the gospel's opponents, and we must embrace suffering for Christ. One of my concerns for the church in America, speaking broadly here, not I have no specific church in mind, one of my concerns for the church in America is that too many Christians see themselves as Americans first and Christians second. When it comes to living worthy of the gospel, much of my perspective and experience has shown me that Christians are very passionate about living as citizens, but this citizenship reflects a national standard, not a spiritual reality. If someone were to look at your life, at this church, would they see a passion for the rights that we have as Americans or the zeal for the truth of Christ? To this effect, sorry to keep bringing out church history, uh, and this is a bit of a lengthier quote. With this, I'm almost done. Uh, but I think it's very helpful, again, because this is from the second century. Uh, it's the epistle, epistle to Diognetus. And the writer is observing the lifestyle of Christians. This is uh, about 100 years after the time of the disciples and Paul, maybe 150 years. Uh, and he writes this. It's absolutely striking. He writes, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of indigenous people, nor do they promote any human doctrine, as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry, like everyone else, and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, indeed their private laws, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, and they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they, glor they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The post-Christian world continues to embrace the darkness. But my friends, this allows the light of Christianity to shine all the brighter. There is hope, not in the endeavors of mankind, but in the transforming power of God's truth, the gospel. And when the entirety of this truth is preached from Genesis to Revelation, 
I believe that Christians will find that they cannot help but desire to live worthy of the gospel so that people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. A lifestyle worthy of the gospel recognizes that Christ died for all so that those who live will no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who died and rose again for them. And only a lifestyle worthy of the gospel will do. Let's pray. Our God of grace, indeed our fears are confounded because of the incredible, incredible love that you have for us. Father, it is a tremendous privilege that we have to be called your daughters and your sons, a tremendous privilege to gather here freely and to worship you, a tremendous privilege to know you because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and a tremendous privilege we have to live worthy of the gospel. But Father, help us, help this church here in Altoona to arise, to put its armor on, and to fight in accordance with your word for the truth of the gospel by standing firm, by striving together, by facing the gospel's opponents, and by embracing any opportunities you grace us with to suffer for Christ. Father, keep us walking worthy, I pray, until we look upon thy face. And until that time comes, we anticipate that with great joy, but we ask for grace and strength for the moment to live in such a way that is indeed worthy of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his wonderful name that I pray. Amen.